special one as we sit down with Brian Koppelman, who hosts The Moment with Brian Koppelman on Slate's Podcast Network, which is a show that I've been listening to for years and was one of the original uh, inspirations for me to start my podcast. And he sits down with filmmakers, writers, musicians, um, always able to have a, a kind of insider conversation. He's just so knowledgeable about um, so many different aspects of craft in general, which I think is something that I always enjoy. It doesn't really matter um, the background of the guests. He's always able to speak to them with a kind of um, depth and understanding that's always been really impressive and inspiring. And I think that it speaks to the holistic, curious nature of, of Brian, which is something that I came to understand in our hour. He's had an incredible career. Right now, he is the uh, he co-created it, and now he executive produces and show runs Showtime's hit show, Billions, which is just an incredible show if you're not watching it, starring Paul Giamatti, Maggie Siff, Damian Lewis, and many others. One of the fascinating things about Brian, something that he speaks about in his own podcast, something that I really wanted to talk to him about, and we do, is that he started in the film industry a little late not too late at 30 years old but the idea is that he and how he describes it that, that he was blocked he was in the music industry before that but he, that's not what he wanted to do ultimately uh, we speak about all the reasons why he had this moment where an inflection point as he calls it and things changed and he sat down and he wrote the poker cult classic rounders hell of a way to start uh, your career and uh, having a pivot in your life. And uh, since then, he's gone on to Ocean's 13, Solitary Man, part of The Illusionist, Runaway Jury, Tilt, ESPN's 30 for 30, This Is What They Want, I Smile Back, Tony Robbins' documentary, I Am Not Your Guru. It's been an incredible career since he decided to um, hop into it at 30 years old, and uh, he's been doing it for over 20 years now. It was a great hour. It was a great hour talking about inspiration and if that's actually the real thing or if it's really more about just following curiosity and always trying to stay adept at all the things that really just interest you and allowing inspiration to come through that and um, doing it as a professional and not only doing it when you're quote-unquote inspired and a great conversation to have and, and one that I'm thankful to uh, hear Brian's thoughts on. So I always wanted to sit down with Brian since the start of this, since uh, he was the inspiration for it and uh, super cool that we were able to do it. Just some housekeeping, if you can like and comment on iTunes, that will help spread the uh, conversation and the show further. We're on all social media channels at AVCPod, that's our handle. And for any inquiries, questions, or uh, guest ideas, you can email uh, this show's producer, Courtney Ryan, at Courtney at AVCPod.com. So, this week, writer, showrunner, Brian Coppola. You know, I still feel incredibly lucky and a tremendous sense of gratitude that I still get to, that I get to do this for my life, even now as a 51-year-old, the fact that this is something that I've been doing for over 20 years professionally is kind of amazing. And I remind myself, because it's a hard, look, it's, it's not hard compared to like a lot of people's jobs and the rewards are sort of outsized rewards in many ways. But when I'm doing it, it's there are parts that are incredibly challenging. And so every day finding a moment to remind myself to sort of appreciate it is really important to me. Yeah, um, for sure. And so all that said, the, the part of really having to break the season story is the hardest part of the writing. You know, because you each time as you set out to do it, uh, there's just so much that you have to figure out. And your our standards are very high. So it seems impossible all the time. But then <laughs> writing often seems impossible. My favorite part is once we've outlined and we've really thought about the story a lot and what we have are our descriptions of all the scenes yeah. and the flow of the thing. My favorite thing is then writing it, making these people talk. The, the dialogue. Well, the, yeah, the dialogue and the action within the scenes. Right. The actual scene writing. Yeah. Um, as opposed to saying, you know, Bobby Axelrod... You know, in the outline, it might say, if I, I go back to an episode from a prior season, you know, the outline would just say, oh, Axe storms into somebody's backyard and punches the guy and, um, you know, walks out. But then when when you're writing the scene, you're like, oh, yeah, this replacement song is playing. And these are the when you're writing what they say and how they look at each other and where everybody's standing. And I mean, that part of it is super fun. That's the part where it's just your imagination and you're kind of flying. You've you've done the work to I was put say, yourself. The hard work is kind of done. You've put yourself in the position, and you've spent all lifetime to put yourself in the in the position where now 
you know, you've spent a lifetime working on your craft so that this part of it is the part where you're allowed to like, um, you know, it's a musician stepping forward and getting to play their solo or something like that. Uh, You know, and then I love, I love rewriting. And I think almost all professional writers love rewriting. And it's one of the things that makes writing the scenes the first time such a free and wonderful experience. Knowing you can go and clean it up later. Yeah, man. It's knowing I'll read this in two days and I'll see it differently. And then there's this base already laid down. So when I'm working on flying on top of that base, I'll only make it. I know now I'm not going to make it worse. And I have this opportunity to suddenly, oh, I write that setup. I Two days ago when I was just going fast, like I didn't realize that was a setup. I can connect that piece to a piece two scenes later. It's free. And then put it. Yeah, I love rewriting. Yeah. I love the idea. And it really makes me free when I'm doing scene work. Yeah, and it seems like yeah, the actual creating that story arc for the season needs to happen first, and that's the hardest. Because if you get it right, then everything else is the fun. That's that's the cake, and then the icing yeah, yeah, comes. That's true. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, that's interesting because I wanted to parse it all the way back to the beginning, or at least the stuff that you speak about on your own podcast with the block that you had. And I mean, I'm just curious, how long do you was that going on for, and what do you think? You know, was the block. I, I would imagine at times it's like something that you're not even aware of. You're just doing something else with your life. And then at some point you realize, oh man, like I'm not doing what I want to be doing. That seems like a journey in and of itself. Well, that's right. Uh, I would say that I certainly had moments the whole time when I realized I had a tremendous facility with words on the page and I, I wasn't using it really. Or I was using it not in the way I was meant to be using it and that there was a kind of personal expression that I wasn't engaging in that when I would work with a songwriter and help them help them nail their song that would be in lots of ways the most satisfying part of my day professionally yeah when I would say that chorus isn't right and we would talk through why lyrically you know uh, it didn't work or I would say, well, what about that couplet you wrote in that song two years ago? And I always had a great memory. That's right. There are certain things you work at to get better and to improve. And then there are certain Come things naturally. that are innate that you just have as part of who you are. And yeah. so my memory for things like dialogue has always just been spooky and weirdly great. That's just something that I have. And so I would always be able to connect those. And particularly, I've always had it when it comes to words. So that was always there. Uh it was unclear to me what form it should take. And I was somebody who throughout my life had a lot of trouble completing writing assignments. I would write a couple of pages that were really strong and then somehow I couldn't finish in a timely manner. I handed in every paper super late. And I did start to realize, I've told the story on my own podcast, but for people who don't know, know, I was 30 years old. I had, Amy and I had just had our first child. Um, He was nine months old. And I had this very clear thought that I wanted to be the kind of father who would be able to come home and tell his kids that they can be anything. But I knew deep down I wasn't, I wasn't trying to be How long the thing did you that know I really that? wanted to be. You know, Prior. a while. I mean, what I knew was I didn't know if it was stand-up that I was meant to do or screenwriting or being a novelist, but I knew that... Was not, not knowing was frustrating? It was, but I, when I, as soon as I started doing the morning pages, Julia Cameron's you know, from the artist's way, Julia Cameron, the way she spells out the art, the morning pages from the artist's way, that opened up to me this path. But I mean, I remember the, very clearly the night when I was sitting in my office and I'm not a smoker. I've never been a cigarette smoker in my life. And I had for that week, like been smoking cigarettes <laughs> for one week. And I'd never been a cigarette smoker. I mean, I got to my, I got to the age of 29, 30 without ever smoking a cigarette. And I was like eating badly and I was alone and miserable, even though I thought I was in my dream job. And that's when I went to Levine, who was bartending, who's my, you know, lifelong best friend and creative partner and all this stuff. And, and said, like, I have to find a way. We got to, like, write a script together. And he gave me the artist way. I'd also recently read Awaken the Giant Within by Tony Robbins. And that helped, too. It was like trying to figure out the sense I had was that there was something more for me. And I wasn't going after it hard enough. And were Amy, they, my wife, were constantly these, said it, too. Were these books not, were they telling you stuff that you didn't already know? Yeah. Really? Well, no, what they do is, so... Y- Yes, look, they're a map that leads back to who you are, right? So, sure. but going on that map, uh, going on the journey, I think for me was important. The books don't, neither of those two books preach to you in any way. They are all about forcing you to ask yourself questions. So, and it, they both have um, sort of a rigorous approach to figuring out what you want for real, not what you think you want, but what you want. 
And I was ready for it because having a child, the first child to me, was a seismic event, right? Because suddenly I'm living for something far greater than myself. Amy and I both felt that way. And so suddenly everything took on a different level of importance. I did right away know that I wanted a parent with intention. And as you start to think about what you want for your children, it, it forces you or it forced me to think about my own sense of who I was um, so that I would be answering from a balanced position. Well, because I was going to say that a lot of people would have that same experience, but they might go to something that doesn't feel as risky because they have kids. That's definitely true. I didn't quit my job. You know, I just found a way to work in the mornings and I'd had financial success. So okay. I, wa lot, I yeah. wasn't like I came from successful. My father was successful. So I knew, although I was living uh, always on my own means, I knew that I wouldn't starve. Mm -hmm. Like I wouldn't literally starve and I wouldn't literally have to leave my apartment right away. Right. Mm -hmm. But I still didn't quit my job because I didn't want to put that pressure on myself that, oh, now I have to, I've never really found a way to write and finish something, but I'm going to quit my job. So I just worked it out that Dave and I met, you know, I, I walked into a poker room. I, I realized the movie was about the world of poker. I told that to Dave. He agreed. He then helped really like, was like, well, what's it about? Who are these people? And together we start building these characters. But I just realized, all right, I have to wake up earlier. I have to sleep less. I was young enough that that didn't matter to me. I was excited. And then you know what happens. You, you do it five days in a row, right? We agreed we'd meet every morning, first thing in the morning, this little storage room that my wife had cleared out that had a slop sink in it. And I, I, and I would sit on the floor usually, and Dave would sit at this little thin desk. And all I cared about all day long was getting back into that room. You know, I was so alive when I was in the room writing, and I was thinking about the script. And, of course, that's the script that became Rounders. And yeah. I was thinking about it all day, and I was so alive when I was there, and I was so jazzed when I would leave. As hard as it was, it was very difficult to write. You know, writing is hard. But it gave me a huge amount of energy and the feeling of freedom because, look, this is a thing I got out of the Tony Robbins books, but when, mm. and I think it's really true, when human beings are making progress, they feel very alive and free. It fills them with a sense of possibility and hope. Yeah. And I felt like I was making progress toward this new life. So it didn't feel risk. What was I really risking? I was really risking my time because I, I was really risking in a way, and this was the hardest thing before. What you're really risking when you set off on an artistic endeavor like this, especially if you don't quit your job, you're risking that feeling of not really being good enough. You're risking yeah. the feeling, the internal feeling of, I can't achieve this thing. Well, there's no, you're not hiding behind, maybe I can, or maybe, like, there's That's no... That's totally right. But, but look, what I, what I came to realize was that when you're feeling blocked like that, if you don't do something about it, something will die inside of you. And when something dies inside of you, you become toxic. Death is always toxic. And I knew I would be toxic to the people I loved. So the far riskier thing for me would have been the conventional life. I yeah. wouldn't have liked the person I was. And that would have been riskier to my That's family. Huge. Look, also, I was lucky that I was, um, I was a talented person. Hmm. So that is like, I did have an innate, I did have an ability at this. I 100% think you don't know if you really do. Like if, you know, there's no external evidence that you do. The only way to find out is by really committing and doing it. And yeah. I was terrified no probably of finding out that I didn't have piece. it. That would have been an awful thing to find out. But in a way, okay, maybe I wouldn't have had it as a screenwriter, but I would have found it in another way. I'd also had enough examples in my life of my instincts being correct about things yeah. to know that I probably, probably wasn't crazy if I could get myself to do it. But I don't want to, I don't want to blow off how bad I felt. I mean, that's what you have to understand. Mm. The external thing of like, yeah, I was smoking a cigarette and I was heavy and I was like miserable in this place that I was in, but I was a uh, creeping self-hatred was happening because it's that feeling of letting yourself down. That's what leads you to let other people down. I had the sense that I was gliding. I wasn't digging in. I wasn't getting out of myself everything that I had. And like, look, I knew that I was a smart person. I mm. knew that I was... Um, Talented. Yeah, I knew that I wasn't enough. You know, I there was enough evidence. Or I knew, I knew that if I had the the guts to do it, like I had the raw materials, and if I was willing to work hard yeah, enough, yeah. I had the raw materials probably to do it. But it was terrifying, man. And how and, long into Rounders writing it did you start to feel like you were actually doing something good? Well, that thing. So you know, as a writer, you have those moments where you know, like. Oh, yeah, oh this is amazing. And, and then, then 24 it's hours later, the you're worst like, holy thing ever. Yeah. So like that, I mean, that is, I'm a human being. So 
there were, of course, moments when we realized, I remember when David and I realized the way that they would talk and we were able to create this language that was like not exactly regular English for them to talk and that it felt like it was working. There were a lot of days where it felt good, but I didn't know. I didn't know. Now I know. I know when well, it works also, and I know when it doesn't. Well, now it's like, now it's your, your dedicated craft for 20 years. But yes, I mean, exactly. you you finished. It was an amazing thing to finish it. I mean, you do remember when we figured out, it was really at the very end that we figured out three stacks of high society. Originally in our first like kind of draft by ourselves, he Mike came in and he asked for three big dimes, which was another sports lingo for like, and probably more common language. And I remember finding, Dave and me finding three stacks of high society as a way to say it. And I do remember when we put that in the character's mouth, being pretty sure that it, because it's like the first thing he says. And you know, he says three stacks of high society and Teddy KGB says, you're, you're sitting the apple. And I knew like that wasn't like other scripts. Like I knew it would be the only script that sounded like that. Yeah. And I, and I had a feeling. And David knew without a doubt because he'd read a million scripts. He'd been out in Hollywood. Um, he was like 27 or something like that. Um, I was 29 or he was 28. I was 30. But it was he had done, put enough time in and he kept saying for sure like, this is a spec script that's going to sell and we have a shot that this will be a movie. And when that sold, yeah, what did that do for, not, I mean, for the emotions that are connected to the block and that this was the way out? I mean, that's got to that, be elation yes. that I can't, un, that's But as soon as I started, I will say, as soon as I started putting days together of writing, yeah, every day the, the idea of that blocked person went away because I was also, the morning pages are a life-saving thing for me. Somehow getting up every day and writing these three longhand pages, first thing, sometimes I meditate first, sometimes I do morning pages and then meditate. But my first hour of my day, no matter what, that's what that's what it is. It's those two things. And the act of this sort of just dumping your subconscious out onto the page and you complete those three pages, it was a miraculous thing to me. It ended, it made me know what I needed to go do. Yeah. Very clear. Tony Robbins' book is what made me know I have to make a change and then doing the morning pages let me know how and what it should so be. So the affirmation, I mean, it being it being bought is obviously professional affirmation, but that wasn't, the internal affirmation had already happened just because of the way that writing made well, you feel. Yeah, the internal a- affirmation that I was a writer, well, that went in stages. I knew I was doing it now, right? I wasn't blocked. I was in there and I was doing it. And David and I immediately started the next thing. Like we were in it. You know, I was in it writing the next thing and making sure I was working at something, writing pretty much every day. Like the second that you finished writing Rounders? Pretty soon after writing Rounders, so we started something So as it's else. shooting, how much, how involved were you as We were writer? on set every yeah. day, yeah. And that must involved have been in the whole process. Just... It was a crazy, incredible thing. Yeah, mind-blowing. We, we sold Rounders March 3rd of 97. We were, that month, we sold two other things. One, a pitch of the script we were already writing, and one, another pitch. And then... December of that year, we started shooting, and then it came out September of the next year. So the whole thing happened very quickly. As you know, so when you say what was the affirmation, I mean, we did live through three months of rejection, and it was all the Hollywood agencies saying the thing wasn't, you know, was either overwritten or underwritten. Um, and and are you going through that emotional? Like, yes, I'm, not I'm good taking enough? a huge ride of just uh, self. Well, it was crushing. It was just, yeah, it was just. I had so many. I had. I risked uh, hoping, you know, and so that's a great. I risked hoping. I, I mean, did. That's the hugest thing, and that's you know, uh, as Red and Andy Dufresne discuss. I mean, hope is really it's a scary thing. So um, in Shawshank, so yeah. Uh, but you do feel like Red getting on that bus every time you are starting out to write something. I hope. I mean, that's what you're. That is what you're doing, and that is always can be terrifying. When Rounders becomes the success that it becomes at the onset of that. I mean, what's going through your mind? Because I would imagine on a certain level, you're militaristic in terms of your morning pages and you're trying to like, I'm staying grounded, I'm staying grounded, but you also just did something that's exploding. Well, yeah, but it was a bomb. Was it? Yeah, it was a bomb. It became, two years later, It started, the thing started to happen where everyone realized how important and good the movie was. But how, in the movie how, theaters, how it was a bomb. How do you think that is to your personal self that you to go through that and experience it? Huge. Your, that must have no, been like so- the biggest like, moment to me was- um. So it mostly got good reviews, but the the first two reviews 
were in these national magazines, Time and Newsweek, which at the time were like, imagine all of Twitter and all of Facebook, because those <laughs> things didn't exist. And everybody in the country subscribed to Time and Newsweek. And those were basically the only magazines, maybe someone had Sports Illustrated and someone else's dad also subscribed to Playboy. But basically, <laughs> I mean, you would want to sleep over that guy's house if you could. <laughs> but basically, the magazines were those two magazines and both of them really shit on rounders and they did it a week before the movie came out Ugh. and i remember reading these reviews and just curling up into a ball like fetal position and feeling like my whole like career and life was it? over i just felt writing? like it was going to be impossible yeah so that night was terrible and then i woke up in the morning and i realized well i can just write i can get up and do it again and what a valuable I immediately thing to you. it was life that is a an enormously life-changing thing because I felt the night before defeated, but I woke up in the morning and I was like, those people can't hurt me. They're critics writing for some, it's nothing to do with me. That judgment that those two people made has nothing at all to do with my ability to get up today and create the next thing. And I had a clear thought and it, I got right back to work and it didn't phase me. The movie then comes out and just does okay. Um, gets some really great reviews, gets some shitty reviews. But I, Dave and I, the weekend that rounders came out, Dave and I were in Montana researching our next movie, Knockaround Guys, and we consciously decided not to sit around and see how the movie did, but to be working. And so we went to Montana, we're researching, flew ourselves out there, we didn't have it set up yet, and just did our thing. And that's sort of been how we've run our creative so lives ever since. Important that you got that you have each other. I've been I've I've been looking forward to asking you about the relationship with with David because I have a collaborator that I do a lot of work with and I mean it becomes like the at this point we've been working together for like six years and I understand my understanding of art and my understanding of craft is through either the experiences that we've had together or the endless discussions about art that we have together and that it's like at a certain point my my knowledge of it is in it's so intertwined that it's not it's like kind of hard to split yes I would say David and I have been really good about each going out and exploring and doing our own things and then bringing them back to each other. Yes. You know, we met when we were, he was 14 and a half. I had just turned 16 and we were trading books and talking about movies and trading music from then until now. And that for sure, we have a shared prism through which we view this stuff, but we still go, you know, David is a successful novelist and he's written these five novels or six novels and yeah four in the frank bear series and two standalones and um i host my podcast and you know i wrote our movie solitary man i wrote by myself we directed it together and we've always gone out and done these things and brought whatever we've learned back. gained lost back to the other guy and we've always been there to support and and help the other guy and it's invaluable though I don't know if I don't know if you can set out to have a partnership. No. I think it's really difficult. It's not difficult for us, but I think it's not difficult for us because we're like brothers without the baggage of having been raised in the same home. <laughs> and so we were competing for our parents' attention. You know, we chose each other at a young age in that way and never stopped in this process of asking each other the most important questions that we have. Now, we each married women who we have even deeper relationships with. We've both been married a long, long time, each of us to a great woman. And so that, you know, if, if one of us had married the wrong person, that could have fucked the oh, whole yeah. thing up. There's a lot of... You know, there are a lot of things that can happen. Like each of our, uh, both of our wives are smarter than we are and um, have supported all of this the whole time. And they're each accomplished in their own ways, too. And so, look, I, I feel like these relationships that have happened in my life are an enormous part of why I've been able to actualize whatever it was that were the abilities inside. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting, too, is the um, what do you think? Because the roles that you have often are solo. Yes. And why what is gained by not doing it solo for you? An infinite amount of stuff uh, at certainly making the show. Most of them are showrunners. I guess showrunners would maybe, there are most people are solo showrunners. They often have sort of like a number two person who does a lot of that stuff. Dave and I have a strong number two in the 
writer's room named Adam Perlman who's great. But we are, we don't consider ourselves two. Dave and I consider ourselves like one. We're one creative entity. Yeah. It's sort of like asking, I mean, we're a lesser version, but it's sort of like asking Joel and Ethan Cohn. Like we just, um, we function as this one artistic entity together. So even on Solitary Man, which I wrote alone, I conceived of that and wrote that script by myself. We made the movie together. We directed the movie together. We are, we are the one entity that picked up that screenplay and made it into a film. Was it harder for potential gatekeepers to understand that in terms of, did it stop? I mean, look, gatekeepers, as you know, I mean, you ask it because you know who you're asking that question to. I, I don't have a lot of regard for gatekeepers. And <laughs> um, I think that what I mean by gatekeepers are people whose primary job it is to say no. I understand that job. I've had that job when I, in the music business. I I know what it is. You know, you read 100 screenplays, you can only make one. But I've never felt that they have any special understanding of what is intrinsically great. So I would never have even thought about whether they would have thought that was more difficult. I mean, the truth is, Dave and I in a room together are incredibly effective. The walking into a room with decision makers, being a twosome helps. It doesn't hurt. We because of the way that we can finish each other's sentences, because if I'm going off in a wrong direction, Dave has a way to redirect me yep. without anyone knowing that that happened, yep. um, is a powerful uh, kind of a thing. And we're always supported. So I never feel like I'm walking into a room and I'm outgunned or outmanned because, you know, I got the Sundance kid with me or he's got the Sundance kid with him if he's butch. You know, so that's uh, for us how we have to think about this. Yeah. And how it just feels to us. Yeah. And, and we, I don't think we've never not gotten a, like, it's never, you know, I, I have to look at it. We've had this over 20 year run of doing this stuff. We've never not been able to do it. We've had to convince people, but that's, you always have to convince people. You always have to, like Harvey Milk said, you know, you have to enlist people. That's, yeah. that is the gig, right? If you want to do this stuff, someone has to give you the money to do it. I mean, not if you want to make, by the way, now you can just go online and go make it. You can take your iPhone and make a movie. You can cut it on your laptop. But if you want to make things on a big scale, somebody has to finance that endeavor. So you have to go be able to figure out a way to convince them. I think one thing, right? So if you're talking about, is it harder for two of us? But look, you're talking about in a business that's still dominated by white men, two white men who grew up in a way where they understand how to talk to powerful white men. Yeah, It's still largely powerful white men making decisions. And I know how to speak that language. I know how to speak to powerful white women. They look at me, they're all very comfortable because I seem like a familiar kind of an entity to them. So that that is, I think, it's much harder for an African-American man or woman or an Asian man or woman could write the same script. And then I think the barrier to then, you know, the burden on them to then convince the gatekeepers much higher, much yeah, more it's, difficult. Yeah, it's a totally different equation. I, I see it with my wife, who's a great writer. She wrote this terrific movie, I Smile Back, three novels. And I see even for a woman... It's harder to get decision makers to take you really seriously. And so I have to say, like, so maybe is it, are there some jobs where maybe it's not traditional for there to be two people, but it's all stacked so much in my favor and somebody like me yeah. in, in my favor that I could never complain about that. Like, you put me in the room and I can't close it. Oh, totally. Yeah. It's just on me, man. No, it's no. all set up for me to knock the, pin down, the pins down. Yeah. They're there. I got the bowling ball in my hand. I'm five feet from the pins. Someone else is 15 feet back. Like, if I can't knock down the pins, that's my fucking fault. Yeah, no, completely. And I would also say that I, f I find that, like, the best thing I think about having someone to go along with it is that it, you're just eating humble pie often because your success is not totally yours, which is nice, too, I think, because otherwise, I mean, I... Yeah, look, the ego thing, I, I, I hear your question, but Hollywood will give you all the reasons not to get a big ego an outsized ego mm. because you fail all the time. I mean, we all fail all yeah, the time. Yeah. The work is never as good as you hope it'll be or you keep trying, you chisel away at it until you can get there and you'll get rejected. You know, you always get rejected. I mean, I can't think of a project that somebody didn't say at some point no to. So you just, that on the one hand will happen. Um, it's harder, like, look, the world now has a lot of ways if you want ego satisfaction, it's all out there. But you hope that as you're on this kind of journey, if you're the kind of person who wakes up and meditates and does morning pages and takes long walks and like hugs your family a lot, you ultimately are having to kind of look at who you are and yeah. be aware of that stuff. I also hate false humility. So because <laughs> I, I feel like it's just another kind of curse of Hollywood. So, I mean, I have a healthy sense of myself, a healthy enough ego 
I can look back over these 21 years and well, I the hard have accomplished a lot have of none of it. Like, right. You, you need to have a little bit of it. That's what I think makes it tricky because you can't just like fully go cold turkey on it because then I don't know. I don't even it, think there's um having a sense of like um, self-respect, confidence and purpose and mission. Those yeah. things are tied together, right? If you have a mission that's strong enough, I mean, I want to be confident enough to go satisfy that mission and go take that hill. I mean, you, it just shouldn't be a false kind of bravado or a false humility. I mean, the whole thing is just to try to have a, a keen understanding of your own strengths and weaknesses and to constantly try to make your strengths even shinier and better and to somehow find a way to take the weaknesses and um, either compensate for them or turn them into strengths. And so, and then taking the self out of it, the work is separate. So you have to look at the work and continue to try to make the work better. And so that's at the writing stage, at the shooting stage, in the editing, post-production. I mean, you're always looking and just trying to divorce yourself of the thing and then just look at it as the work yeah. and make the work better. Yeah. That's just the practice. That's the craft and discipline of the practice of doing this, which nobody who does it a long time can't. Like if you can, well, a lot of people blow up after one movie or one book. If you can do this over and over, it's because you've learned how to look at the material with some sense of objectivity and figure out how to make it better. Yeah, well, because I was thinking about, and I'm trying to conjure up a question that relates to as your career got bigger, like, was it harder to find inspiration and things like that? But it seems like you answered that question actually just now, because it's devoid of that. It's 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 about a practice. I, yeah, also, I've never gotten comfortable thinking. That's what I'm saying about the Hollywood. Like, you know, you can make a movie and know that it's good. I mean, Solitary Man got on all these year-end best lists, like New York Times and Roger Ebert. But like very few people saw the movie. It was a hit in New York, which was great. It was number one at the theater it played at and everything. But it wasn't a hit in the country. And a lot of people, more people found it because of my podcast and billions and have gone back to it. But that did nothing. Dave and I direct that movie and it did nothing to advance our career. It was two years of our lives. And yeah. we just got to, but, but what we got out of it was we made a movie that we love and that people who see it love and that matters to people and some people watch it three times and send me a really nice letter. And I love that. Mm. Uh, but our ride hasn't been one where it's been like this constant, yes, we've been able to make stuff always and I've made a living always, but it's been this incremental sort of a, a ride to get here. For every Ocean's 13, there's been a runner runner, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. And so, yeah, on the one hand, wow, we got to go make a movie in Puerto Rico with Ben Affleck and Justin Timberlake that we wrote. And that... If I were the kind of person who cared about the wrong parts of this, yeah. I guess that would be something I'd spin differently. But I don't like the final product, and I didn't enjoy the experience of making it. I mean, those guys are great, but I, I love you know Ben is somebody that means a lot to me. But I didn't get any ego satisfaction out of that. I just felt misery. Yeah. Well, how do you keep finding the inspiration to write? Like, because I get the idea of just waking up every morning and doing it. But in terms of what you're writing about and how you're feeling enthralled to do it, well, it's the reverse. So. It's not about trying to find the inspiration. What it's about is allowing my curiosity and fascination to lead me to places hmm. that I want to work. So I don't try to like gin that stuff up. I'm constantly watching, reading, looking at images, listening to music is a gigantic part of my life. And so if I'm doing all that stuff and I'm living a curious and fascinated life, then I will find my next obsession or I'll dive deeper into the obsessions that I already know I have. I, mean, I, was, I watched a movie the other day that's a great movie, a terrific movie, um, Edgar Wright's movie, Baby Driver. But I, for me, right, what I loved about that movie was that's uh, Edgar Wright's obsessions. You can feel his obsessions on screen. Yeah. I don't share his obsessions. I would never have known how to make that movie other than music. I think we're both really obsessed with music. But I watched it and what I, I thought was what an incredibly perfectly made thing that's about none of the shit I care about. <laughs> and uh, I salute that guy. He's a genius, I think. But like I, so, but for, for, for me... I'm constantly on the lookout to recognize the things about which I'm obsessed. And I will chase them to the ends of the earth. They may not turn into a movie, but they're all a part of like, so I was obsessed with poker. And then that thing happens or, you know, uh, fascinated by the kind of people who put it all on the line as gamblers, separate from, from rounders and that are con men. Those things that have been like lifelong obsessions are always there to dip into. Billions was something Dave and I thought about in that world and those kind of characters for like eight or nine years. I mean, it We've must been have been, really... I wanted to talk about just 
not being overwhelmed by the amount of research that has to go into. Yeah, you learn that. That's part of the craft. Part of the craft is figuring out like, um, I need to do this much research. I don't need to do all that. Or I, or you know what? In this case, fuck, I got to dive all the way in in order to get it. I can't get it right. I can't write from a place of like where it seems like I'm writing from a place of authority if I don't dive all the way in, right? So that balance, though, that's through trial and error. I mean, you just kind mm-hmm. of figure that out. Like right now, I'm super obsessed with ping pong. I play ping pong <laughs> like four times a week. It's my extra. You I play like spin? competitive sometimes, but I go, I play competitively and I take lessons and I'm totally into trying to like master these simple forms of the forehand and backhand, the forehand loop mm-hmm. and toss and backhand. And that's not a movie, but I throw myself into it because when I feel this way about something like a pursuit like this, I'll just go all the way into it. I'll read everything I can about it. I'll watch videos of it. I'll like learn the names of weird Lithuanian ping pong players. Uh, and then, so sometimes that stuff ends up becoming a whole movie or show. Yeah. Sometimes that becomes a line in a script. I could spend six months and Dave is out there doing the same thing. And sometimes one of us will, like Dave will live this whole life of being somebody who studies martial arts and does jujitsu. And it might be me who's like, um, hey, I, have you thought about we could give that to Paul? And then Dave will do the work of that because he spent all that time doing it. Or I'll be off in a thing and Dave will my, you know, recognize something that I've been into and point it out. And I love that's that, giving your hobbies to characters. Yeah, we always do that, or often. Our interests, hobbies, fascinations, or ones that we've seen. But I, I would say living in a state of openness, curiosity, fascination, knowing that I'm probably not gonna love Baby Driver, but going to see it, and then getting really blown away by a guy's artistry. And gift. That's I. I'm constantly doing that, and it's really useful. It's useful professionally in ways you don't think about. So, like, I was meeting with an art production designer the other day, and we're talking about things, and he references the artist James Terrell, and just making a point. Well, I I'd gone to see James Terrell's big exhibit at the Guggenheim three years ago, four years ago, because I'd heard it was amazing, and I went, and um, it was a really bad day. It was this thing where everyone was lying on the floor to look up at the lights. And um, it was a, a day where it was free admissions. There were a thousand college kids there and it was kind of an annoying experience. <laughs> but like, I remember like thinking I should, I should see this thing and I connected with it. I hadn't thought of it since then. And then this production designer mentioned it. And I had that reference in my head because part of living this life in this city is uh, you go and see art and you know, maybe it'll strike you or maybe it won't. But what it did was allowed me to communicate with this person in a way that I couldn't have if he had just said that. And we were like, oh yeah, you mean that that thing or the other thing that that person did? Then that leads you to three other pieces of art you may have seen. And so I'm just always trying to stay as open to those kinds of experiences as I can. And so I never have that question of, well, what am I gonna write about? The morning pages allow me to recognize what these obsessions are, recognize what I'm fascinated by, recognize what I'm uh, thinking about so that I can then take that thing and Dave's doing the same shit that I'm doing and so we can come to each other and go hey I've been thinking about this I read this book when you're in between stuff um, obviously I think morning pages will become obvious what you're going to write when you're in the middle of writing a story and you're picking up from where you left off the day before when you're just kind of processing on paper what kind of form what are you writing well the morning pages are just a brain dump they're three oh, really? it's just stream of consciousness literally three pages of stream of consciousness that's all that it is it is literally the way julia cameron describes it in the artist way i mean you are waking up and just not allowed what it does is breaks down this urge to perfectionism and it allows you to just ramble and you force yourself to. So the first couple of days, you might be self-conscious about it, but you, you don't have to lift your pen up. You have to keep the thing going the whole time. You're not allowed to read it again for five years. And in doing that, it's so freeform that it forces you to recognize what's going on inside. And, and I can't tell you how many ideas have shown up. I don't do them for the ideas. I do them to free myself to find ideas later. But often like clearing, ideas clearing will just, it is. And, and you get your anxieties out in ways that you don't think about or you're not aware of ahead of time. It's a, an, an incredible exercise for me. And lots of times solutions show up there or they show up, you know, I'm meditating and suddenly an idea shows up. I mean, for all artists, all artists have the fear that the idea well will dry up. But if you have a creative practice, at a certain point you realize it doesn't. You're the kind of person who looks at the world through a certain lens. Yeah. So what are you looking at and what is an interesting thing you want to tell a story about? I've, I've had a, um, 
one conversation a podcast uh, in the beginning with um, a director named Elliot Roush, and he was talking about how for him, like there, he he tries to stay closer to his own pain as a means of like channeling that energy into something productive. And like you're talking about the stream of consciousness kind of releasing anxieties. What is the relationship between your pain and your art? And is it not that? I would prefer to never be in pain. I don't want to be in pain. Yeah. Uh, But look, your fears, wishes, dreams, loves, all of that, if you're honest, as an artist, it all goes into the work in some way. Yeah. There's no movie or TV episode that's devoid of what's going on inside of me or inside of David. Yeah. Um, it doesn't come out exactly the way that it would if you were talking to somebody in life. But uh, I've spent a lot of time in my life thinking about this notion of uh, does an artist have to suffer? Yeah. Look, most human beings suffer. All of us suffer. So how you use that is part of what makes somebody an artist for sure. But I don't think you have to... Li- like, like if I look at you know my favorite songwriter under 70 or whatever is... Uh, Jason Isbell. And if I look at Jason Isbell's albums, you know, where he was in probably the most pain was the album right before Southeastern. But Southeastern and the two that have come after are far superior. And they're where he was able to process all that shit and express it with it all in the rearview mirror and living a different kind of happier existence. Or I look at a movie like Upstream Color. Yeah. By Shane Carruth. I, I don't know Shane that well, but I know him. I've spent a good amount of time with him in my life. And I think he can recognize that kind of, Clearly, I mean, he's a super genius, but clearly he can recognize that kind of pain. But I don't think he'd have to be in that kind of pain to make that movie. Right. In fact, if you were in that kind of pain, you probably couldn't craft something that hmm. stunning. Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's an interesting... It seems like the mechanisms that you have in place have allowed for there to not be such... Highs and lows, if I'm understanding that. I mean, you try to look. Obviously, I'm, I'm life racked. happens. I mean, look, I'm racked with anxiety sometimes, like anyone else is. I just have found tools to deal with it. Yeah. Um, also, man, to be like a tortured 28-year-old is way different than to be a tortured 51-year-old with you know two children and a wife and like, yeah. uh, I mean, in a successful television series. And it doesn't make sense for me to live in a state. Uh, by the way, I mean, Trump's election fucked me up really badly. And gave me my first like panic attack in eight years Mm -hmm. where I really felt anxiety come on in a way that was difficult to process. Same. Even with all the tools that I have. Yeah. Uh, So nobody's immune to that shit, man. Life will fucking knock you down, right? That's not even life. That's the world. So those things can always happen. If something, I mean, you know, the health of those that I love, uh, if that were ever imperiled, I couldn't, I couldn't fucking keep well, yeah, the my randomness cooler of life is, is to like that stuff is of course and of course own- of course as somebody who deals in he, emotion all the time right because my career is about being aware of what i feel i'm like all of us uh i'm keenly aware of the fragility of all this stuff and i'm fighting to stay in the present but i have put things in place to make it easier for me to do that than it would otherwise be yeah and i have the ability to focus on my work other than if the health of those I love is imperiled, then I'm really bad at as bad as anyone else. Horrible. Um, but short of that, I can, uh, even in the midst of the Trump stuff, like as when I would get home and I would freak out, you know, I really did not know that it, I really was, it was very difficult for me. It still is horrible. I can't even conceive that that guy's the president of the United States. It's so terrifying. But when I'm doing my work, I'm able to do my work. My, Amy, my wife's the best in the world at it, at being present for anyone that she cares about and uh, has a remarkable ability to live in the here, which I've tried to mimic. I don't do it nearly as well as she does. It's a very powerful thing to be able to just put yourself in the present. Uh, but, and and my podcast with her is probably a lot of people's favorite of my it podcast. It was an interesting one for sure. Because she's so open about sort of her, the difficulty she had with becoming who she is. But I am, it's all right there. It could all, I'm aware of how everything can crumble in a moment. That said, our job is to like forge ahead because what's, I don't know what the choice is. Yeah. And so if I'm going to forge ahead, I'm going to forge ahead and try to do the best work that I can and try to throw myself fully into doing it because uh, I have this incredible opportunity, which comes with an obligation to do the work as truly and deeply and uh, as entertainingly as possible. And I think that once people start to get into a groove, 
in their work that it starts to become harder at times to take a step back and like, am I doing exactly what I want to be doing? Because I wanted to talk about the decision to make Billions on Spec, which you discussed in your podcast. To write it on Spec. Write it, write it on Spec. Yeah. Showtime. Pay, like, I mean, we that, made the actual show. Showtime paid for it. For right, showtime. right. Yeah, yeah, we yeah, wrote I, the script. I, I we wrote wrong. the script on Spec. Yes. That you decided Meaning to without a deal. We took the time. We didn't pitch it. We wrote it. And um, that's at a time when you have already had, you know, quite a career. And I feel like it could have been easy to just kind of stay in the It would have been very easy lane. to set. We would have definitely sold it as a pitch, but I don't know that it would have become a series. And yeah, look, sometimes you have to go against what the common wisdom is or paradigm of the moment. Curious how and, you made that choice. Well, like by keeping track of successes and failures, our own, um, we'd had a couple of bad experiences where we got paid a lot of money and sold something as a pitch. To television only to find that the series itself didn't get made the pilot didn't get made and we wanted to flip the paradigm we wanted to have look the only time a writer has leverage is when the writer has a piece of material that somebody wants that's when you have a chance to get terms that uh, benefit you as opposed to that benefit the buyer and so we felt like the story was compelling enough the world was compelling enough and if we wrote the script that we felt we could write we thought there was a chance we'd be able to say if you want this, you have to commit. You're going to make the pilot. You're going to have a limited window of time in which to make that decision and a limited window of time in which you can decide if you want to make the series. Otherwise, we get it back. And it was a risk of, yeah, four months of our lives to write the pilot where we weren't going to get paid and putting all your hopes and dreams into something that then nothing might happen with and you don't even have the check uh, as consolation. But it, it wasn't a hard decision. It, um, we got advice that was counter to that, but it wasn't a hard decision. Why? Well, because we, I mean, we both knew. So unlike with, I was dead certain we'd written two pages of the thing. I was dead certain it was a show. I just knew it. I mean, all my experience told me we'd pured one. And I knew it. It took a lot. It was hard as fuck to write. It was hard to get the tone right. It was hard to get the narrative to work. But these characters were so alive right away to us. Bobby and Chuck and Wendy were from the beginning. And Lara, too, were from the beginning they just announced themselves and were incredibly alive on the page in a way that I, I was as sure as I could be that it was distinct and, and would separate itself from the pack. And I, it's really interesting having watched both seasons and the arcs that they're on, knowing that, I mean, a lot of your characters being in films, it's, it's a two-hour arc, but this is like, you know, 24 hours of life that's occurring. That's got to be enthralling and hard and... Yeah, but it's, I mean, that's the thing that I, we knew these were characters built to go, to roll. Well, what was different that, that made them that? Yeah, versus... I can't, it's hard to articulate it. I think it's, it has to do with the questions we had about them. We have this, we have really been trying for a long time to figure out what makes somebody like Bobby Axelrod so unrelenting in his determination to dominate the yeah. world. And so having that question, it's not a question that has a finite answer. It's a question that you put a character in a variety of situations to try to learn the answer. And so that, and the same thing for Chuck, that allowed us to know this thing had a tremendous amount of throw. Yeah, and I think that's actually the best part is that the depth that they've gotten over the two seasons and sometimes doing things that are counter to like what their classic art, you know, well, archetype is. Yeah, we weren't is, interested in these classic archetypes. We were really interested in these people and who they really complex are. Complex and confusing. And sometimes they do things that confuse themselves. And I'm just thinking, I mean, that's real life. And to actually be able to be, you know, creating that type of, that level of um, complexity is really... Well, we, we work really hard to do that. Um, and we have these incredible actors. I mean, that's the other piece of it is that, I mean, you're writing for Damian Lewis and Paul Giamatti and Maggie Siff and Malin Ackerman and Asia Kate Dillon and David Costable and Condola Rashad. And, I mean, you know, Toby Leonard Moore, you're writing for these people. I mean, you go down the whole call list. I mean, even people who aren't series regulars, you know, I mean, you're writing for Jeffrey DeMunn as Chuck Sr. You're writing yeah. for, you know, Kelly uh, O'Coin as Dollar Bill or our buddy Dan Soder as Mafee. And, I mean, right down to Daniel Isaac, who plays Ben Kim, who's been in every single episode of the show. Um, you know, you just feel what an incredible... If I didn't mention you and you're on the show, it's literally because it's embarrassing to keep going. But we just feel like it's endless, the stuff that we can do because of the capacity these people have. How much have any of them... How much has, has the process changed once you have a concrete 
actor in mind about who this character is and the way in which they embody them? I mean, yeah, it's not conscious, but you start writing lines that you know they can nail. Damien will crush or that yeah. you can feel the run. You know, Dave and I will often just come up to Paul on set and say a, a phrase um, that we've heard that we know Chuck will say three episodes from now. And, um, you know, you just start to recognize the stuff that blurred lines between who these guys are and, and who the character is. And so there are little things like that we just know about these guys that they'll dig. There was a story that Damien told us and the way he said it, we took it and we gave the sort of punchline of it to Paul. And I remember at table when Paul said it and Damien looked up and all of us had this great moment. I mean, it's um, we're constantly listening for stuff that sounds like their yeah. characters as played by these people. Yeah, yeah. Is this, um, I mean, at this point, having really hit the stride of it, is this the most fun you're having? Yeah, this is the, I mean, look, um, making your first movie is an incredible thing. Then getting to work with Steven Soderbergh and Matt and George and Brad on Ocean's 13. You know, you can't have a better Hollywood experience than that. Yeah. That was a, we were on set every day. It's classic. We would fly on the private plane with those guys to Vegas. We lived in, like, so, and the experience of that and working with Steven, who's taught us more about the craft than any other human being, was incredible. Wow. All that set, making Solitary Man, which was this incredibly personal story with Michael Douglas, which was a dream my whole life, like to work with Michael Douglas, really incredible. But this experience does surpass all of them because it's a world there's nothing between Dave and me and telling this story. The, in, and in fact, not only is there nothing between us, there there are all these things to amplify. Uh, and to make better and bigger the thing that we want to do. So we have these incredible collaborators and Showtime is a dream. Uh, they are, they love our show. They love the way we tell the story and they only support and amplify it. And the same with our cast and crew. So yeah, look, man, I mean, to have a show on 10 o'clock at night on Showtime, that's exactly the show that you want to make. Working with your lifelong best friend and some of your favorite actors I don't know how it could get better. It's sort of like yeah. the ultimate experience at this thing. And it's and the fact that it's been a long time coming, I think makes it even much sweeter. To end on, has there been anything that you learned that you weren't expecting to learn from the experience? Well, I'm I'm sure there's a ton of it. It's I'm still in it though, so I Yeah, that's true. It's hard. That's true. There are little things, but it's hard to I mean, when Dave and I have real faith in the way we want to tell a story, really sticking to that is just, and it's go, I think it's for all artists, um, the more specific you can be. People sometimes think, well, if you're super specific, you will lose the audience. No. The truth is the opposite. Yeah. The more specific and genuinely idiosyncratic a character, a moment, a line is, the better chance people will connect with it because they'll, they'll recognize that it is something real. And they will recognize something in, in themselves that hits off of it, you know. And I, I mean, I just learned that lesson over and over again in my creative life. And it's never, uh, it's never something I'm, I'm sad to be reminded of. It's always something I'm glad to be reminded of. But I don't have, this hasn't been a surprising experience to me. It's more been a affirming experience. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great place to end. Great, man. Well, thanks, thanks for this. And yeah, good luck so with much. the podcast. Thank you. Thank you.